and welcome to Ripley Recall. The Ripley Recall is a podcast created by the Camp Ripley Public Affairs Office to highlight and discuss events and activities of Camp Ripley and the Minnesota National Guard. Focusing on the people and operations that make up the many departments of Camp Ripley, interagency partners, environmental stewardship, major exercises, and the surrounding communities. The content of this podcast does not necessarily express or view the opinions of the state of Minnesota, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Today I am joined by Brigadier General Lowell Cruz, Assistant Adjutant General Army for the Minnesota National Guard, as well as the Senior Commander on Camp Ripley. Welcome, General. Hey, thank you, Tony. I'm excited to see this format and what it's going to turn into over time. Absolutely. We're off and rolling. Sir, for those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I've, I've served in Minnesota National Guard. This year is, I think, my 33rd year. I, I um, enlisted as a cadet out of South Dakota State, and um, like most soldiers, can remember my enlistment date, and September 22nd of <laughs> 1988. So grew up on a farm in South Dakota, a dairy farm. Um, I was the youngest of three kids, and um, you know there was a 10-year break between me and my older siblings, so I, w- I was kind of raised maybe as a only kid in the whole process as well. Right. So we had a dairy farm. Um, at the height of the dairy farm, we milked about 70 Holstein cows. So I had um, 480 acres of farmland that went with that and spent my summers riding a tractor and throwing hay bales and taking care of calves and things like that. Nice. So, yeah. Um, so I went to school at Grand Duel High School in Revillo, South Dakota. No longer exists. It's been part of the whole consolidation effort in South Dakota of schools that are closing. And um, graduated in 1985, went to South Dakota State, um, went there to study um, agriculture, think, you know, thinking that I would return to the dairy farm, and um, also joined the Army ROTC there because I always had an interest in the military, and um, you know, just truly embraced that whole experience of the ROTC life at, the, at South Dakota State as part of Ranger Challenge and all sorts of exercises and things like that. Um, commissioned in 1989, and um, prior to commissioning, I had decided that I wanted to go back to the dairy farm. So one of the things I did was I jo- was able to join the Minnesota National Guard that fall of 1988 and um, became a um, cadet in the, at that time, the 175 Field Artillery. Okay. Headquartered the battalion in Montevideo, and I was assigned to the small city of Dawson, Minnesota, which is about 20 miles east of my dairy farm. And so it was pretty convenient for me to be a, a National Guardsman for 17 years as a traditional soldier. Um, so when I commissioned, I um, got the opportunity to have a reserve commission, and I, and I joined the Minnesota National Guard as an officer then in 1989, went to OBC, and came back as a field artillery officer in the 175 till 19. 92 when the 175 then was converted into the 151 field artillery. Mm-hmm. Over time, I spent 17 years in that field artillery battalion out in the western Minnesota, and most of that time I was a full-time dairy farmer. So I would um, get up about 4 in the morning and milk my cows and then drive in anywhere from a half hour to an hour to guard drill at 8. And I'd get back home that evening and milk another round of cows and go to bed. So drill weekends were pretty busy for us and then when it was time to go to annual training I'd leave my um my bride in charge of milking my cows for two weeks and 
and pray that I came home to a dairy herd that I could still um, find <laughs> and that she would still talk to me at the end of that two-week experience. And that was our life for till um, 2004. And then in 2004, the 151 got activated to go to Iraq, um, tasked with building two um, in lieu of MP companies. So we split up three batteries of artillerymen and turned them into MP companies. And the battalion headquarters, which I was the S3 of, um, went to over to Iraq to be a rear area operations center. Mm -hmm. And so in the summer 2004, I sold about 60 um, Holstein cows and and um, thought I'd go back, go to go to war, come home, and go back to farming in some manner. But um, coming home from the war experience, I actually um, had built a lot of good relationships with um, people in the Minnesota National Guard, and it, I was able to leverage them to get hired full-time and come here to Camp Rook, Ripley and work. So I've been a full-time employee at Camp Ripley since 2006. Mm-hmm. Originally hired as the the director of public safety, and um, from did that position for uh, almost six years, and then got the opportunity to be the G four, and then coming out of five years of being the state's director of logistics, I I got the opportunity to get promoted and become the Army ATEC. So that's my story. Okay, so. right on. What was uh, what was it like coming in for the to the G four? I guess as your full time job. Well, I I. Initially came in with a lot of um, thoughts of maybe illegitimacy because I had not grown up working full-time in the the director of logistics. Um, you know, there's almost 400 employees across there, and, you know, there we have officers that track their whole career working as logisticians in the G4. Coming in as a 06, as a director in charge of that was was a different experience for me because, um, you know, I had to convince a whole bunch of people that I knew how to be a good logistician as well. So I teased them a lot that, you know, I'd spent 20 years of um, practical supply train management running my dairy farm. (laughs) And um, that led us, you know, but I, you know, I quickly, my job as a senior leader is to find you know, subject matter experts and good leaders and lean on. And throughout the Department of Logistics, there were just some incredible officers that we were able to um, take advantage of their talents and um, and take advantage of their good ideas and implement them. And so uh, my first year being the desk log, uh, one of the most important things we've done for the Minnesota National Guard is we consolidated all the maintenance activities here at Camp Ripley. So we created what we now call the CMA. Right. Prior to that, that was you know they had three very distinct personalities with the mates and the CSMS and the FMS shop that was stationed here at Ripley, and um, I just thought it was that it was Im- impractical and inefficient to have three, you know, essentially um, what we call wage supervisor fifteen leaders running all those three organizations, and so we pared that down to one. Mm-hmm and put all those structures under the leadership of one individual, not three. And uh, it, it eliminated some of the competition between the three elements, and obviously it helped streamline a lot of the efficiencies of how we do um, supply chain logistics parts, that kind of stuff. Because now instead of having three separate elements that were ordering parts and, and, and competing at times, um, we were able to have one, you know, supply system inside of the CMA to take care of all the mechanics that are fixing all the different types of equipment there. So, right, more cooperative. Yeah. Yep. So uh, that that was that was one of our f- big projects the first year. 
obviously after that we flowed into a lot of other firsts for the Minnesota National Guard. The you know in, in 2016 we had the um, the first time to NTC. So the year before that, 2015, we had our first um, XETC rotation for the brigade that was here at Camp Ripley, and so just a lot of opportunities to um, hit home runs in the logistics world because we really were stretching our logistics enterprise and trying to, you know, figure out, you know, how to do things. And, and, you know, the teams of people that we have and the quality leaders throughout the logistics world continue to um, surprise people what they can move, do, and haul at times. But, you know, once the operators kind of explain what they need, um, be it a field artilleryman or a logistician, it's kind of the same thing. You know, we got to understand the plan and then, we are in the background making sure the plan's successful. And it's those are same concepts between the field artillery and the logistics world in reality. So Okay. So did, through your career, did you uh did you ever picture yourself as being a general? No. Ever? No. When I um when I got commissioned I I I to be perfectly honest, you know, I had a four year scholarship to go to through ROTC to pay for my college. I had left the farm and my parents were going to pay for my college. And I just decided that I wasn't going to put that burden on them. So I got a, not a four year, but a three year ROTC scholarship as a, as a sophomore. And, and, you know, with that came a six year commitment. And I truly felt that about six years was all I could probably, you know, balance between being a farmer and being a, um, a soldier. Yeah. But, um, so that, you know, that would have run me out to maybe being a captain and that that looked like success for me but like a lot of soldiers once you get into the process and into the organization time just kind of creeps up on you right. next kinda thing you know you're a, you're a you know you've been in for 10 years or 15 or whatever and so no uh, i would say you know the first time it became you know, even a thought that I would be a general is when I was taken aside by General Neil Lloyd and told that I was going to have a, a submittal for a certificate of eligibility to the Congress to for to be a for general. You know, uh, prior to that, I figured I would serve until my MRD uh, in 2019 and retires. You know, whatever level I was at. But you know, as time marches and you're successful with what you're doing, you get promoted. And, you know, and anybody will tell you pass, you know, the Minnesota National Guard for our officers um, can pretty much guarantee that if you're a good officer and keep your nose clean, we can make you a lieutenant colonel, in, you know, in a 20 to 30 year career. But um, the, the pyramid beyond that is all luck and timing. Right. And um, so um, I would say I just, you know, was lucky in the fact that um, I was in the right place at the right time and others weren't, I guess. So. Okay. What what drew you to being an artillery officer? What was the excitement about the uh, the, minute, the artillery battalion that was twenty miles from my farm? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in reality, if it had been in, you know, there was an infantry unit in Marshall, which was an hour away. You know, if, they, if that infantry unit had been in in Montevideo, I'd probably been an infantryman. You yeah. know, so, but the same side of once I went to OBC and learned the skills that are required to be an artilleryman, I took a lot of pride in being an artilleryman especially with being a gunner, um, figuring out the, the artillery solution of trying to f drop a bullet in a basket at, you know, six, seven, eight miles is an interesting game. And try so learning in school how to, how to account for, you know, the rotation of the earth and how the wind's blowing that artillery shell in the air as it's flying through there are all kind of cool 
concepts to learn and account for. And so that, that, you know, and like any, any unit, once you get in a unit, you gain a lot of the pride over what that unit does. And I would say the field artillery is the same as in that realm. You know, we have a lot of distinct culture and pride that, you know, makes us pretty proud of being an artilleryman. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, now that you're uh, out of that culture a little bit and kind of into the GO field, is it is it a little bit of a culture shock? Is it? It's it's different, right? You know, if you're a senior senior leader in any organization, you quickly realize that you're never not a senior leader. You're always a little isolated from the others. Um, not not that I'm you know, feel sorry for myself or I'm isolated, I guess. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, the statement that's lonely on top is a true statement sometimes, you know. And and so um, it's a little j- bit different. Um, obviously, being a general officer, there's a whole slice of Army culture there that I had never realized until I had the opportunity, you know. So there's, there's a process for everything, and there's a process to make a general. There's a process to, you know, serve outside of the state and so it's it's um an interesting piece uh you know, I, I just got nominated for a national level board and um, i'll represent the fema region five on a capabilities board that's going to talk about what the guard needs for capabilities for dom ops so that's kind of interesting as well as you know so that not only shaping the future of camp ripley but also sh- shaping the future of the guard is kind of cool so yeah, yeah absolutely you put on the star in November of seventeen. Yeah. Right. You know, how did the family unit fall along with that? How do how do they like the position? Well, I think you know, Amy, my wife, serves right alongside me. So, you know, we tease that whatever rank we we get as as um, soldiers, our spouse is probably one rank higher. <laughs> um, but you know, she's made a lot of sacrifices following the guide on, and um, you know. She's had to sacrifice professionally. Um, when we left South Dakota and came to work here full time, she left a full time um, job as a county extension agent in South Dakota and really struggled for 10 years or so to kind of find her way of what's her identity. So, you know, I think that's the challenge for um, children or spouses of senior leaders is you, you get forced to assume your. Um, you know, the the general officer or the colonel's identity is part of yours. And that's a struggle sometimes because, you know, they're all individuals and they all want their own to be their credit for what they do, not for what somebody else is doing as well. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that coin is there's a whole um, piece of culture that she has to embrace as being the lady at Camp Ripley. And so we host, you know, um, my mom used to joke that my dad would bring home all the stray dogs in the in the township to feed them. Um, you know, so we always had somebody at our house that he had found that needed help somehow. And I sometimes fall, fall victim to that, uh, inviting people all the time to my house to, to have a little bit of social um, environment. So sometimes that gets me into trouble because... Um, you know, Amy's probably not as excited sometimes that of all the people that I do entertain. But, you know, that comes with the position as the entertaining piece because, you know, it's our job to to um, ensure that um, people that come here and visit, um, you know, have a memorable time. So Right. Absolutely. So. 
what uh, you know, what type of projects have you championed since you started? Well, you know, as the the senior commander here, as the you know, the essentially the base commander Monday through Friday, you know. It's been an interesting game. The The first project was trying to describe the terms and references for a general on the installation. That's, you know, the base commander Monday through Friday, but we still have this garrison organization run by Colonel Seimer. And how do you pair out those responsibilities and that? Uh, so kind of defining that is important to me because I, I don't want this to be a one and done with the general officer here at Ripley because then it was done just for Lowell Cruz and I don't think that's right. Um, so I'm trying to put in place the structure that will allow us to continue to um, have an assistant adjutant general assigned here to work full-time on the installation. I, I think that's a very effective structure and gives us a lot of um, credence for the importance of Camp Ripley. Now, um, it, it creates a few more problem sets maybe because, you know, I do have four directorates on the installation. And and so, you know, what was the spirit of cooperation sometimes now becomes a a, um, a subordinate relationship. And, you know, that, that causes some friction sometimes as well because, you know, all of a sudden we maybe doing things because the general said so rather than because, you know, in a spirit of cooperation, we think it's the right thing to do. So I, I'm trying to balance that all the time because, you know, I, I'm very much a participative leader. And so I want everybody to feel good about what they're doing and that it's the right thing to do. So we worked across the installation. It was important to me as the G4 to expand what we are have for rail capabilities so i'm pretty proud of that two years ago we built a siding outside of the base and we're working this next year we'll start the design of two rail spurs inside the base um that was pretty prevalent to me as the g4 um i i went to um a rock drill about five years ago where we were when we were really rattling our sabers against korea and we're in trying to understand how you would mobilize the army to go go to Korea, and it was pretty evident that we needed a rail structure across America, and, and it was in jeopardy. And so my goal was to come back here and try to at least fix my end of it. And uh, I think we've done a pretty good job. You know, I think once the spurs are done, we'll take a loadout of a brigade's worth of armored equipment and take it from a 10-day problem set, potentially down to two or three if they run 24-hour ops. And right. so... We'll be able to load train cars faster than probably Burlington Northern can take them at that point, which which is the best that we can do. You know, that's the goal for everybody is, you know, outwork the next person in the in the chain so they're waiting for you or that you're waiting for them, not the other way around. Right. So, Absolutely. so I'm excited. You know, uh, the tornado came through in 2016 and tore down a whole bunch of buildings. So. It, you know, what I joke about in the public is being urban renewal. Uh, you know, I, I wish it, wish you could direct some of that urban renewal, but pretty excited about the buildings that replaced it and the capabilities that that brought to us. I was just driving by Area 7 the other today, and I was thinking about the, the new maintenance shelter there, you know, which is twice as big as the one that was there. And it... <laughs> That building's probably not going to see a lot of wrenches turned into it, but it's going to be a permanent home of a lot of the traffic associated with the the rec center and the mission command training um, center that we've kind of built around the rec center. So that's pretty cool. I'm excited about the fact that we've 
found a permanent home for the state patrol and the emergency management training center, the cooperation we've had with HSEM to open up that facility for more permanent party. And so, you know, we moved the state patrol in there first so that their academy would have a permanent home. And then this last year, we've moved the DNR law enforcement team in there as well. So their academy will have a permanent home in that building, which um, allows them to brand the building. And, you know, branding's important when you're trying to build a culture, and that's what they're doing with their young officers. But it also gives them a home where they don't have to tear stuff down and, and pack it away. And, you know, so that's pretty cool, you know, and, and moving the DNR out of Nelson hall over there gives us an opportunity to return the installation headquarters into the historic building that it started out in, you know, and as a lover of history, I am um, truly, um, you know, have driven by Nelson hall for, Oh, almost 15 years saying, I wish the hip post headquarters was back in there. So that was nostalgia pulling there. But, you know, once you peel back the onion layers of how we're going to occupy that building, I think it's going to make us as a installation headquarters more efficient. But more importantly, it puts us back in the eyes of everybody that's here on the installation. You know, when I was an M-Day soldier coming here for 17 years, I didn't even know there was a garrison commander or training support unit, you know. And so... Um, and, and they were all located here in the armory and the armory was fairly new at that time. And, and, um, I had no clue who they were, what they were, or what they did. And so I think just the prominence of being in Nelson hall, you know, puts a stamp on where the, he- where the headquarters is and where the leaders are. So, yeah, absolutely. so, well, good. Well, thank you. So we're going to take a quick break for a moment. Meeting the basic requirements. That's what the rest of the world does. Contributions come easy. Commitment, on the other hand, is hard. True commitment takes a concerted effort on your part. Working hard and giving 100% is your commitment. You will find that day when your muscles ache, your joints are sore, and you don't know how you will carry on. It is in that moment when you look deep within yourself and find that which motivates you to drive on. You will not accept defeat because quitting is not in your nature. Instead, you will pick yourself up and show the world your level of commitment because that commitment is at the core of who you are. It takes drive, the kind that doesn't fade when impossible obstacles are staring you in the face. How badly do you want to succeed? This is about commitment, a commitment to yourself, a commitment to those around you, and a commitment to make a difference. You will succeed because you are America's future. There must be a willingness to march a little further, to carry a heavier load, to step out into the dark and the unknown for the safety and well-being of others. Now that, my friends, is commitment. We live here, we work here, we serve here. We are the Minnesota Army National Guard. All right, welcome back to Ripley Recall. I'm talking with Brigadier General Lowell Cruz, Assistant and Adjutant General Army for the Minnesota National Guard and Senior Commander on Camp Ripley. Sir, we talked uh, quite a bit about uh, everything that's coming up in your career and, uh, you know, the things that you've come through in order to get into the position that you're in. Uh, I guess my next question is, you know, what kind of uh, future ambitions do you have on the horizon? Well, I've told um, Major General Mankey that sometime in 2023 it'll be the appropriate time for me to to leave working full-time here as the installation commander. Uh, that decision's really based on, you know, my family, I guess. My um, 
my youngest son Connor is a junior right now in Pierce High School, and he'll graduate in the spring of twenty three. So, um, you know, at that point, um, Amy and I will be ready to transition if we have to. And so, it'll be six years of having me here as the senior commander at that point. You know, and most throughout the, our history here of um, installation commanders, six, seven years are probably the the max length. And I, I, I truly think that's probably a good thing because, you know, it takes seven years to build something here. And and so, you know, ideas that I've put into the master plan will come to fruitation probably in three, four years after that. But, um, you know, I, it'll be time for somebody else's ideas to come in as well. Okay. Um I'm hoping that I might get an opportunity to um, to work for a couple of years after that as just a traditional soldier. We'll see if if um, if I get an opportunity to get you know another geo job within the state. But if I don't, I'll be pretty proud of my time. And Amy and I have um, purchased a property over in South Dakota. So once we we now have another home to move our stuff to once we get have to vacate this beautiful home we live in here. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's work to be done there, fence to be built and that, you know, we'll move our five horses over there and, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll train horses, train dogs and enjoy the, you know, the sunsets in, on the prairie there in South go. Dakota. Yep. So, so yeah. Great. Great. Is there uh, is there also a family legacy with uh, being in the military, sir? Well, my dad was a World War II vet. Um, he had a, he was turned 18 in 1944 so he had a farm deferment for the first year because he was the primary farmer on a my great aunt's farm ran the farm for but then he um he got pulled into um world war ii in 45 and trained to um it's funny he trained to be a um a parts clerk so he had to memorize thousands of lines of numbers associated with um all the different parts available in the supply system as a parts clerk. But then when he got to his first duty station, they looked at him and said, we need you to be a cook. So he spent a, you know, about six months at the end of world war two running a, a, um, a dining facility at, um, at, um, Aberdeen proving grounds. So, mm-hmm. so that, you know, uh, you know, longer back in the legacy, you know, um, my great grandfather was a um, was in the German army and and deserted from the German army in the 1870s so he could come to America and um, so I joke around you know and then I had a great uncle that was a bootlegger and during the depression so I joke around that I come from a long line of you know um, bootleggers and deserters <laughs> but um, in reality my dad's service uh, pretty proud of that and um, you know. My son, Jacob, is a captain on active duty right now. He's stationed in Fort Knox. He's going to take over company command of an engineer company in Fort Knox here this spring. So we're kind of excited for that opportunity for him. Um, I'm, you know, at some point, I hope he's, he's happy with his active duty career and he comes back to the National Guard. That's the plan right now um, to finish out his military career. We'll see, you know. Time creeps up on him too. He'll be a seven-year captain at, at that point. So you right. know, it. You, you, we'll see if we can convince him to come back and be a reserve soldier, or if he'll just stay on active duty to finish out his twenty. So that's that's pretty cool experience. 
I don't think Connor will get the opportunity to serve. He's got some health concerns with uh, asthma and that that's probably going to f- affect his ability to get through MEPS and get recruited. But we're a pretty proud military family, obviously. Amy's dad served in the Vietnam era, and, and um, you know, my, my Uncle Harold was a Korean War vet, so there's a lot of veterans running around in the Cruz family. So Great. Yeah. As we're as we're talking about retirement and sunsets and things like that, you know, what are some of the more memorable events that you can remember here from Camp Rippling? Well, I, you know, the I think one of the coolest events my first year being a general officer was the 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 Christmas party that we held at the hangar. Um, you know, Colburn's and Perkins caters a Christmas party for us every year, and that was kind of the first year we moved it into the hangar and and really stretched ourselves to include everybody on the installation and we did a few activities of trying to get feedback from you know people that work here every day and and truly um you know that that's exciting for me because i value other people's opinions and so that that's a memorable event obviously the construct you know the success of the d parks woods campground's pretty cool um, I'm excited, you know, when we cut the ribbon into Nelson Hall will be a memorable day for me, mm-hmm. you know, cause, um, it'll be cool to go back into that atmosphere of that building. That building's got so many historical aspects that I want to share with people and train and teach them. So that'll be pretty important. Um, you know, the opportunity to live in the, the installation commander's house and, all the stories of the history of that building is pretty cool as well. You know, the, the background of Colonel Rosberg and his wife the, that helped design and build that house to all the different families that have lived there since is a cool legacy and will be a fond memory as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Great. Uh, with a lot, of, a lot of young officers out there of all types of different branches and, and career goals, do you have any... Uh, advice yeah young officers coming I up. do yeah you know first thing I would tell everybody is never take yourself out of consideration so what's that mean you know never always always get ahead on your education so that you know when they're looking when we're looking at the list of who's eligible you're you're on the list because you're you know caught up in your education and then obviously your your height weight PT requirements, you know, those kind of simple things take you out of consideration sometimes. And I've seen a lot of people that had potential that didn't go anywhere because of that. Um, Relationships matter in our organization. You know, we like to think that it's just black and white, but the people portion of leadership um, involves relationships. And, you know, leadership is a trust business. The way you build trust is to build relationships. And, and that's loyalty that goes both directions. So, um, you know, I, I, I give a, a kind of an overview of, of leadership. And leadership's really got three elements. You know, there's competency, there's um, commitment, and then there's character. And I can send you to school and make you the most competent public affairs NCO possible, right? Teach you how to run all this equipment we're talking and all that. And, you know, I can, re- I can reward you with good events, and that spurs on your commitment to come back tomorrow and continue to work. But it's really character that makes leaders. And inside a character, there's all sorts of different virtues that make up a leader. And we all have them in different levels. There's no, you know, 10 virtues, and each one of them is 10% of 100% of a leader. 
But, um, you know, so some people have more, um, more humanity, more, um, humility, you know, um, more, um, you know, stick to things like that, that are part of their character traits. Obviously there's, there's pieces of your character that you inherited from your parents, right? You know, I, I inherited height from my parents, which, you know, allows me to stand out in formations and, you know, you know, becomes that beacon in the night to go find as a leader, which, uh, you know, is, I would say has always helped me in the process. But um, confidence, things like that are all part of that character trait. And if, you know, and the other side of the character trait is your integrity and those those elements that make up trust, right? And if you lose them, you lose your the trust of the people you're trying to lead and you're at that point ineffective. So right. so guard your guard your character. It's the most important piece of being a leader. So looking back uh, you know, twenty years from now, if you're looking back at the Minnesota National Guard, what are some of the things that you hope to hope to see? Well, I, you know, we continue to morph right now. We're trying, you know, we're going to take the, the division and turn it into the only penetration division that's in the National Guard, which means it's going to be a super heavy division that's going to have three armored brigades in it and probably give it the opportunity to be the spearhead if we ever have to go back into conflict in Europe against the Russians or maybe, you know, God forbid, the Chinese someplace. But um, so... I'm I'm curious to see that develop. I'm excited that, you know, the Army brought back Division Artillery Headquarters. You know, we we configure the Army for the conflicts that we're in or we anticipate to be in. So, you know, in, in the early 2000s, we went to modular brigades, and brigades became the lead element. And it kind of fit what we were moving into in reality in Iraq in Afghanistan where, you know, an 06 was in charge and, you know, that was probably the level of leadership you needed to get things done. Um, in a more kinetic, um, multi-domain battlefield, you, you're going to need three-star generals trying to, you know, try to manage the whole process, core commanders, those kind of things. So I'll be interested watching the National Guard force structure here in Minnesota and how that affects that all those decisions affect that. I'm excited to come back in 24, or we hope late the fall of 24, maybe the spring of 25, to to watch the ribbon cutting of the new museum. Uh, that's one of the things I'm very, I'll be very proud of once it comes out of the ground and gets built because, you know, I helped shape the location of that and the idea of moving it off the installation. You know, it always had been talk and, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I helped spur that organization to actually start moving mm -hmm. to um, to which will be a beautiful location and beautiful museum when it's done. And as a, like I said, as a lover of history and a historian, that's telling that story of what our what our predecessors have done is pretty cool. So I'm excited to see that. So I'll be excited to see how the the guy that replaces a guy or gal that replaces me, um, you know, uses Nelson Hall and enjoys it as a headquarters. You know, I hope they have the same level of enjoyment that I know I'll get out of the process. So, good. you know, and then we're trying to understand how to position Ripley for the future, whatever the future fight is, right? We're trying, we're trying right now, we're trying to figure out how to make East Range a longer range for our tank crews because we know that they're going to continue to have to kill things deeper 
for protection reasons. So, you know, we've got some constraints on land on Camp Ripley as well, you know, and we're right at the cups right now of any kind of collective training almost being too big for our 53,000 acres, which is amazing, you know. But, um, you know, we'll... Ripley's going to have another 100 years worth of purpose, and it, it'll train a lot more soldiers. So, Good. Good. Well, sir, I think this wraps up our time uh, on this episode of the Ripley Recall. I, I thank you for joining me. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited that I was part of the inaugural attempt. Obviously, you'll have to cut out about half of it, you know, put um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a great conversation. I think it's a great format. I, I look forward to... Um, had you interviewing other great leaders inside of Camp Ripley and across the state and so that we can continue to, you know, see the thoughts behind the person, which is what this format brings you. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, and this wraps up our episode of the Ripley Recall. Uh, listen in for more information. Thank you. <laughs>